that Bible, if you have it, to 1017 that helps people uh, know where we're at. So we're at page 1017, 1017. And uh, we're going through 1 Peter. And we've been in 1 Peter for the last several weeks. And we are coming into the runway, as we've been saying for the, uh, going through the past several months. We've been talking about it in our Sunday morning sermons. We've been going through it in our small groups. And next week will be our last Sunday in this series that we've entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. And uh, we'll be jumping into the next series. Uh, we'll have a little bit of a buffer and then going into our next series entitled um, Consider Your Ways as we're going to be walking through the book of Haggai. And I'd really heavily encourage you to come out for that. It's just for the month of June. It's a short book, but it's, it's action-packed. It's dynamite, and, and it's lightning in a bottle. So I'd really heavily encourage you to check that out, to invite other people into that series. And then we're going to be jumping into our summer series uh, come July called Rhythm, uh, Finding Your Rhythm. Many of us, we all need balance, right? If life would just slow down and we could find balance, but balance is an illusion because it means something static and life is never static. It's always moving back and forth. So we've got to find our rhythm. So I'd really heavily encourage you to check that out. Come this summer, invite other people to it. Today we are in our series entitled, um, Do the Right Thing. Now I don't know if you've heard the story about uh, Mallory Holtman. Now Mallory Holtman, it's a, it's a pretty radical story. She was a softball player for Central Washington University in April 2008. She was just coming to the conclusion of a storied softball career. She had almost set every record in Central Washington University's history. And she's going, it's now she's playing, uh, I believe it was Western Oregon University for the conference championship. It was senior day. It was a time of celebration and, and just patting her on the back and, and all the seniors for what they've done. And so the game gets into the game and uh, the um, Central Washington is in the outfield. They're playing Western Oregon when this girl named Sarah Toklovsky goes up to bat. And she takes the first pitch, she swings at the second one, it looks like it's a line drive, and amazingly it goes over the fence. She never hit a home run in her life. She's so excited that she starts running over to first base, she ends up running, missing first base, realizes it, turns around, and in doing so tears her ACL. She collapses, hit the ground, and she has to crawl to first base. And the umpire says that she has to go and touch the bases in order for the home run, home run to count. So the coaches of, of uh, Western Oregon are like, can we put a pinch runner in? And they said, no, the rules don't allow that. If that's the case, then you only get uh, a single instead of a home run. So they're like, what do we do? And they're arguing with the umpire trying to figure out what to do when this is when uh, Mallory, who's on the opposing team in the outfield, steps to the front and looks at the umpire and goes, can we carry her? around the bases. And the umpires were flabbergasted. What? You want to carry her around the bases? They said, yeah. So her and the shortstop, Liz Smith, they grab her, they pick her up, and they, they, they carry her to each base, and they drop her leg on each one, just gingerly touching it, and they come and puts it in. And it, people are in the stands just crying. Unbelievable story. Uh, they've not seen any type of sportsmanship like this before. Even, if, even when it meant, I mean, this is, Central Washington's doing that, even if it cost them the game, and it did. They end up losing 4-2. to two. And here it was Senior's Day, it was Mallory's Day, and here this one girl who never had a home run in her life hits a home run, and by the way, the ACL injury ruined her career. She was done. And yet, she, gives her, she picks up this girl in this great act of sportsmanship to carry around the base scores even if it meant losing herself. It's this picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of doing the right thing. Now, the world has a certain way of doing things that is completely antithetical to the way God wants us to live and do. The world says, gain and get the reputation, get the fame, get the celebrity, get the power, get the prestige. And the gospel says, no, humble yourself. Surrender, sacrifice, give. So it's these two different worlds that are at war against us. The world appeals to the desires of our flesh. We want that. We've seen people succeed with that. And yet Christ is calling us to something different, something greater, something more, more wonderful. So we have these two choices, these two paths in front of us. The world's way and God's way. 
And God is calling us, saying, he's calling to this people that he's writing to that have been spread throughout the known world and have been persecuted, that their very lives are at stake, where they're being killed for their faith in Christ. And he's saying, you know what, even in the midst of this, even as you want to lash out, even when you want to cry out, even when you want to fight back, even when you want to assert your rights, he's saying, I'm calling you to something different. I'm calling you to do the right thing. I'm calling you to surrender. I'm calling you to sacrifice. It's different than what the world wants. But I'm going to show you what I want. So Peter is writing to these people, giving them and us the instructions on how to live a right life and do the right thing. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we get any further, let's pause and ask God's blessing on our message time. Our Father and our God, we come before you asking you to speak to us Help us to understand how we might do the right thing. Even if it means hurting ourselves. help us to see that we'll be exalted in the long run because we're partnering and surrendering to you. Lord, speak to us today. Remove any layers of unbelief. Take the, the, the broom of your word and just remove that dust of sin and unbelief so we can get to the core, the core truths of your word. That your name might receive glory and we might experiencing the experience the joy of doing what you have made and purposed us to do we pray this in jesus name amen so let's jump right in we are in first peter and again if you have one of the uh pew bibles we're on page 1017 and we're going to jump right in and see first of all that peter is he's talking in verse 11 he says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you Now, we could see there that if we want to experience the blessing of God and do the right thing, that it involves us humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, it's interesting that the word humble there means to bring to the ground to make level or cause to, figuratively, cause to abase or cause someone to lose prestige or status. Now, it's, in, it's an aorist command, meaning it's, it's undistinct. It's an aspect thing where it's, it's something that's going on. It's not just one time, but it's an over and over again understanding. And it's an imperative, so it's a command. So it's, it's kind of a funny command if you think about it. It's a command to be humble. Be humble. It's like the pastor who's being interviewed for a job, and they ask him the question, are you humble? Because if you say yes, you're not humble. So he says, well... I don't know. And they're like, are you humble? And he's like, I don't know. And they keep pressuring him. Are you humble? And he's like, yes, I'm humble. Just doesn't work very well, does it? You know, but here it's saying that it's a command. It's an imperative to be humble, to lose status, to intentionally embase oneself. So how do we, how do we humble ourselves and lose status? And, and under, the understanding there, it's under God's mighty hand. So in essence, we're allowing God to humble us. So how do we allow God to help us lose status? Now, I've been wondering that. How do we allow God to humble us? How do we abase ourselves and allow God to do it at the same time? How how do those two go together? And I I was thinking and meditating on this verse, and I was reminded of my my brother's baptism. My brother came to Christ as an adult. He and his wife wanted to be baptized at the exact same time. Not in the same service, the exact same time. In the tank, together. So the pastor... What he did was he put his hand on one of them and a hand on the other one, and he said, when I baptize you, they both lifted their legs up and he pushed them down at the same time. So it's, it's similar to what Peter's saying here, is we're to allow God to push us down, but we've got to release our legs and say, we're not going to resist you. We're going to let God put us in the place that he desires us to be. It means humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. As James said, we're to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Understanding that we need not to exalt ourselves. We have this tendency to boast about what we do, to give our credentials, boast our resumes, talk about how great we are. I've done it. I feel shame for it. I think we've all done it. Try to make ourselves bigger and better than we really are. God says, no, humble yourself. Now, how do we humble ourselves? Here's three different ways. First of all, according to the text, it says here that we are to be surrendering status. 
surrendering status. That's what it means to humble ourselves. It intentionally abase ourselves and losing that prestige that we so want other people to think about us. We're to be surrendering that status. What other people think. I mean, we have a tendency to be trapped by what other people think about us. You ever done that? We do it all the time. So-and-so thinks this about me. So-and-so think this about me. Well, who cares? What does God think? That's the most important thing. What does God think? What does God say? Because at the end, that's who we answer to. I mean, I'm amazed at how much we care about what people say about us that we don't even have that big of a relationship with. I've, I've been talking with this. My daughter and I have been working through this issue at school as we're talking about, you know, my friends and, and the peer pressure. And sometimes I think we're all in fifth grade. We grow up, and we still think about these people, that what they think about us. And the reality is, and I've told her, I said, do you know how many people that I keep up with from fifth grade? <laughs> how many of those people are you going to be interacting with you for the rest of your life? Probably not many. It could be a few. But chances are, you're not going to be hanging out, hanging out with the same BFFs that you had in fifth grade. So why do we care what people, other people think? We need to care more about what God thinks. And having status in the sight of God not in the sight of this world. So we're to be surrendering status. Surrendering status. See, we have this, again, this tendency to promote ourselves. And I have had people think that we are advancing morally. We're advancing as a society, and, and we're not. We're really not. We're the same. It's been the same a thousand years ago that it is now. I love what Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he put it this way. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. It's the same problems. Same problems that we struggle with in junior high are what we struggle with when we're in middle age and even older. So we need to be surrendering that status. Surrendering that status. Now, if we look at this, we, we get a, a good picture of who we are. I mean, have you, have you really thought about it, who you are? I mean, how do you even describe yourself? When people say, or you meet someone, how do you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm such and such. Most of the time, I would adventure that you define yourself by what you do. Do you do that in a conversation? Like, what do you do? Oh, I do this. And that takes the, we, we find a great deal of status in what we do. And we tendency, we have tendency to exalt ourselves. But what does the Bible say that we're made out of? Dust, dirt, right? I did some research. You can go to Home Depot and buy a bag of dirt for $1.37, right? So really, you're just walking dirt. So you think that, you know, you're like, I have a $350,000 house. Oh, really? That's a $1.37 that has a $350,000 house. You know, I got a really nice car. That's a $1.37 sitting behind the wheel. I mean, at the end of the day, we're living dirt. God has made us for a reason, and, it's, and we have to rethink who we are and what God has made us for. Now, how else can we humble ourselves? It's interesting that in the text, the way that the word, the, the sentence is structured, it's saying that this next part, after he will exalt you, the next way is how we will humble ourselves. Look, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, the word for casting means to throw or cast upon, to throw upon something. And that's a showing that that's how we humble ourselves is we don't try to handle it anymore. We roll it off of ourselves and put it onto God. We need to cast our cares on him. We can't handle it all ourselves. So as Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. My burden is light. See, many of us, we want to do it ourselves. You know, like, like my son right now, we're trying to get him to put on his shoes. Okay, he's three. And he's, matter of fact, I, he woke up in the middle of the night the other night, and he crawled into our bed, and we're trying not to get him to do that anymore. So we, I went in, and I laid in his bunk bed with him. And this is the most loud kid in the middle of the night. And he's having nightmares about Velcro. I'm not kidding. He's like, no, shoe won't go that way. I'm like, ah. I'm laying next to him in bed, and that's what he's doing. He's just freaking me out in the middle of the night. And I'm watching him put on his shoes, and, and you try to help him. He goes, no, I do it. Now, don't we do that? 
mean, we do that as adults. I do it. I'll do it. I got it. I can handle it. I mean, we're a culture that, stri- that just celebrates underdogs and those who can pull themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps. That's why the theme song that many of us have is Sinatra's, I Did It My Way. Unfortunately, that's going to be the song that'll be the march on the way to hell. People have to do it God's way. We have to surrender. If you want the crown, you got to go through the cross. That's what it talks about within the scripture. So we have to make sure that we are casting our cares, our anxieties. That's what the word there is. It means, and it's interesting that the word anxiety in this context, it's the Greek word marimna. And it means to divide or draw different directions. Why? Because that's what worry does to us. We have anxiety. Does it divide you? What are you dealing with right now? Maybe it's a health report. Maybe it's something, you're, maybe it's a, it's something at your job, and you're worried what the future holds, what's going to happen. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe your spouse said, I'm done, and I'm out. I mean, there's this anxiety then that comes upon us that divides us. And Jesus is saying, no, I want those problems. Stop trying to handle them yourself. Give them to me. I'm reminded of a story I, w- I read once several years ago about this man who had, was watching his neighbor. His neighbor would w- come home from work every day, and before he would walk into the house to see his kids, he would stop at the front tree, and he'd put his hand on it. And he'd, cl- he'd close his eyes and be quiet for a minute. Then he would breathe, and then he would put his hand off, take his hand off, and then he would walk in the house. And then the next morning, before he left for work, he would walk out, and he would touch the tree again. And he would breathe and then he would leave. And the neighbor noticed him doing this every day. I mean, it went on for weeks and then for months. And finally, he had to stop. And he, he came up to his neighbor and he goes, yeah, I have a question. Every time you come home, you touch this tree. And when you leave, you touch the same tree. Why do you do that? He said, well, I'm getting ready to spend some time with my kids. And I have all these problems that I've got on me and anxieties and stresses at work. So I put them on the tree. And I leave them there. And I don't think about them anymore. And then when I go back to work, I pick them up again. See, what Jesus is telling us is that we need to leave it on him. To roll it on him. All of those stresses, all of those relational issues, all of those personal problems, all of those work-related stresses and school problems that we're dealing with, to roll them on him. To cast our anxieties, to roll them, put them, and place them on him. He can take care of it. He can deal with that. See, we we need to leave our anxieties with the Lord. Let's go back. There's another reason why we should humble ourselves. Look, Look at verse 6 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, notice that little word there, at, or phrase, at the proper time. Now, the word for time, the Greek word, there's two Greek words for time. One is called chronos, from which we get the word chronology. That's indicating time that is cyclical, that com- repeats. Like certain chronos would be spring, summer, fall, winter. That's within chronos time. That's time that repeats itself. These are the, 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 the uh, ceremonies that we remember, the time of getting out of the Thanksgiving. We know it's coming every year with family. Or when we're doing this, we know that it's, that's the chronos. And then there's the kairos time. Now, kairos time is, uh, is the, a time that comes and then it's gone. As a matter of fact, it was personified within Roman or Greek mythology with a Greek god. He was actually called kairos. Kairos. And kairos was the youngest son of Zeus. And he was portrayed as a young man, always young, never grew old. And he was always standing on his tippy toes, always. And he had wings on his feet. And he was completely bald, except he had a lock of hair right here. And he was always running. He's sometimes called God of Opportunity. And if he was running, the reason he was running is that, that um, I mean, it's the understanding that time is passing you by. And sometimes he would even have scales in his hand, and he would even be balancing at times on a razor, showing that there are times that we, are, we could lose and fall in a moment. And we're going to miss that opportunity. Now, it's interesting. He had that lock on his hair because that's how people stopped him. And they had to stop him from the front. They couldn't stop him from the back. That as soon as he passed you, you couldn't grab that lock anymore, meaning that time has passed you by, and not even Zeus himself could pull him back and capture him again. 
It's the understanding of opportunities and timing that is, that is there. It's a proper time, and it's, it's that special occasion that it's not going to come around again. It's like our kids. If you have young children, there are times, they're in Kairos right now. They're going to be gone in a moment. They're growing up, and they're out of the house. Many of you that have older children, you think back, and you went, where's the time gone, right? Where are my kids? I, I remember them bringing them home from the hospital. When did they start talking back and driving? You know, when did they start doing that? Because it's, it's gone. It's never coming back again. So we have to grab on to these, these Kairos moments. And it's saying here then that let God has the proper time. He has the moment that he seizes for you. So we need to be trusting in his timing. See, humbling ourselves is allowing God control of the events and circumstances in our life, which is completely antithetical to our dead poet society carpe diem culture. Seize the day. Grab it. And he's saying, no, let God grab that for you. You don't try to take it yourself and grab it, because when you do, you mess it up. How many of us have, I mean, how many of you, you don't have to show your hands, but how many of you have felt that way where you took something out of the control of God because your timing, you thought your timing was better than his? See, I'm reminded of King Saul. First, first Samuel 13. He's the first king in Israel's history. This is a guy that tried to take time in his own hands. And there's a situation that he's facing. He'd been in war with the, the Philistines. They show up with 30,000 chariots. And they've got, I mean, chariots in the ancient world's like tanks, by the way. And, and he's, they show up, and they're ready to go to war. And he is freaking out, and his people are scared. And they're running around like chickens with their head cut off, going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he's like, I don't know what we're going to do. Samuel, who was his mentor and the last judge in Israel's history, hadn't shown up yet. So he's waiting for Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifice. And God would speak in that moment in time. And he's like, what am I going to do? Samuel's not here yet. The time has come. He said he'd be here in seven days. It's been seven days. Where is, where is he? Where is he? I don't know. Okay, okay, okay. We can't. And they're like, Saul, we can't wait anymore. we got to do this thing. We, what are we going to do? And he's like, I don't know. So he says, well, let me, let me offer the sacrifice, which the law said, don't do. So he makes a sacrifice, and then Samuel shows up. And Samuel's like, what did you do? You didn't wait on God's timing. Because of that, the kingdom is being withdrawn from your hand and given to someone else. So he loses his kingdom because he refuses to trust in God's timing. See, we have a tendency to look at our circumstances rather than the Savior. And we're like Peter. Peter's walking on water. Hey, this is great. And then he says, wait a minute, the, the waves are crashing in. And that's when he starts to sink. If you get your eye off the Savior and you look at your circumstance, you're going to sink. Keep your eye on the Savior and you're going to walk on water. So we have to be trusting in God's timing, that he will exalt you, that he will lift you up, that he will honor you at the right time. Now remember, God's time is not our time. God's time is not our time. Moses, before he delivers the people of Israel, has to go through 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, many of us can't be still for four minutes. We can't think of 40 years. 40 years? Wow, God, you need to catch up to me. I mean, I, I don't, how many nanoseconds is that? I don't know. See, we have to understand God's timing is different than our own. And understand that God has a means of exalting us at the proper time, just like he did with Joseph. Here's another guy. He has dreams about what's going to happen, that his family members are going to be bowing down to him. And then what happens? He goes into slavery. His brothers beat him up, sell him to slavery. I mean, that's some pretty awful brothers. I mean, I don't like my siblings often, a lot. They used to beat me up as a kid, but I can't imagine my brother put me on the open market. Well, maybe he would have. Okay. And he sells him into slavery. And then he's accused of something he didn't do, and he's put in prison again. I mean, he's putting him in prison the first time, and then he does nothing but write stuff. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And he finally gets out, and then he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. It was all because of God's timing. So we have to understand that God will exalt us at the proper time. And we need to be trusting in his timing. Now, that's not all, we're all, not all we are to do, however. Let's look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, what is Peter telling us? He says we need to be on guard. 
I was, when I was in football, I remember being in this drill called Bull in the Ring. I hated this drill. And they put you in the middle of this circle, and I was a freshman, and I was with all of the seniors. I don't know why they did that, but maybe to torture me. And they put you in this circle, and you're to be alert. And what happens is, is that one of the guys, the coach will call out one of the guys' names, and he's supposed to yell really loud, and then run at you full speed. And then you have to hit him and, like, push him away, shed him real quick. And there's times where it's like, you, I mean, you've got to be on guard, because if you're not, what's going to happen? I'm going to get nailed. <laughs> so I've got to be on guard. So he's saying there that we have to be on guard, because Satan is prowling around like a lion. You've seen the pictures of lions, you know, watching like the Discovery Channel, and they got those vision goggle things, you know what I mean? It's like green light, and the lion is stalking in the grass. And it's interesting there, it says like a roaring lion. And the idea of that word in Greek, it's a lion in hunger. He is insatiably hungry. He's not going to be stopped. So he is prowling around, which means we need to be bracing for battle. He's coming at you. It's a guarantee. If you are a follower of Jesus, then he is exed you. You are on his list. And he's, he's made you a special target. Now it's interesting what does the lion go for when he is hunting, like when you see the gazelle? Is he going for the strongest gazelle? He's going for the weakest. So he's coming after. He's going to try to come after you, especially if he knows you're weak in faith. If you're tolerating sin in your life, he's going to bring you down. So we need to make sure that we are bracing for battle. We need to be watchful. The word there for watchful means alert, and the word sober-minded means not in control of any foreign stud, um, substance, to be engaged with your wits, to know what's going on. So we're to have our wits engaged, and we're to be alert. Now, some people, we can go the opposite way and say and be consumed. So there's some people that see Satan in everything. Now, Satan's a very real spirit individual. He's a fallen angel, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But the text says we need to be watchful, not consumed. Now, it's like this. If I was Aaron Rodgers of the, the Green Bay Packers, we're going to stick with football. I know it's baseball season, we're going to stick with football. And it, Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers, and facing him la last year were the Chicago Bears. And staring at him right in the face was number 54, Brian Urlacher. Now, I've never met Brian Urlacher. I've seen his neck, and I'm still trying to figure out how his head connects to the rest of his body. The guy is all muscle. Now, as Aaron Rodgers is thinking about how to advance the Packers down the the field, which I hope he doesn't. I hope he fumbles because I hate the Packers. Okay? And he's thinking about that. He's dropping back to pass. Now, is he consumed with where Brian Urlacher is? No. Does he know where he is? He should. Because <laughs> if not, he's going to be in the hospital tomorrow morning. So that's the idea. Satan is on the other side, and we need to be alert to him, but not consumed by him. We need to be alert to where he's at on the field. So we need to be alert, have our wits about us to pay attention. And we need to make sure that when we are battling Satan, we have to understand that we are to be standing against Satan's schemes. Standing against Satan's schemes. Now, we're going to see a lot about the devil here in a minute. It's one of his other names, Beelzebub. He's also known as Lucifer, son of the morning. He has many different titles, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the destroyer. He has all of these different titles that are given to him within Scripture. Um, but he is the enemy of God. And the Scripture tells us that we need to be alert to his schemes, to know that he has got a plan for you. He has the playbook on your life. He knows about when you're most ready to sin. He knows the sins that to, to dangle in front of you, that to get you to fall. And this is what the Scripture says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, his, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, it's interesting. Peter says that we're to resist him. The idea is face-to-face -face confrontation, to stand your ground as he's coming at you, to, to hold on. And interestingly enough, in Ephesians 6, I think stand is used four or five times, not attacking him. We're not to go off looking for him. But we're to be standing our ground when he comes against us. That we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We're to be resisting 
him, this great dragon, this ancient serpent, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, and the accuser of the brothers. We know that he is, was created to be a guardian cherub of God, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, who led the angels in praise of Almighty God. He, in essence, he was God's worship leader. He was a breathtakingly beautiful creature, according to Ezekiel 28, and became proud because of his beauty and believed that he could become God. And he uttered a series of I will statements in Isaiah 14. And this is what happened. He said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He wanted to be God and wanted worship like God. So God kicked him out. Kicked him out. And the angels that sided with him ended up going to earth, becoming demons. So the demons are fallen angels. Now he is at war with the people of God. He can't get to God himself, so he goes after God's kids. So this is some of the things that he does. I want you to see this. Some of the schemes of Satan, according to Scripture, that I've put together for you. He looks and sounds religious and moral by masquerading as an angel of light. He knows the Bible better than you do. He can quote it. Where do you think cults come from? I've never met a cult yet that doesn't cite the Bible. Because they distort it. They masquerade as an angel of light. That's why some groups look moral on the outside, but inwardly, they're dead. But inwardly, they're dead. Satan doesn't care if you're being moral. He wants you to be moral, as long as you're not being and following Christ. This angel attacks through false philosophies, false religions, false ministers, false disciples, false morals. A false gospel and even a false Jesus. He goes on. He uses the fear of death as a weapon to instill men, fear in men's hearts. He lies to us. By the way, it's his native language. He always lies. He seeks to rob, kill, and destroy anyone in his path. He goes after your stuff. He goes after your family. He'll go after your health and those closest to you. He wants you to keep sinning. Fight in your own strength. Pervert God's ways. He wants you not to forgive others. He lures you into affairs, and he will steal your conviction. He looks for a window to enter into your life. He offers secret knowledge. He wants you to slander, hold on to anger, put a thorn in your flesh. He wants to keep you from fellowship, incite you to evil, misinterpret the word, and he will promise the world. He wants to keep people in bondage to sin and conflict with other believers. He will come after you when you're tired and weak or when you think you're strong. He wants you to think you can have salvation without suffering and will use your past against you. Now, he doesn't operate alone. Most people say, well, Satan's coming against me. You know, Satan's too busy trying to get Billy Graham to sin. So chances are he sent someone lower to you, some type of demon. And his demons are agents of evil, and this is some of the stuff that they do. They're following Satan. They're terrifying creatures that know the Bible. You know, they're not on all these scary movies, by the way. They look a lot nicer than that. Their heads aren't spinning around like that. None, none of that stuff. They promote false worship, counterfeit signs and wonders, healing people, making them sound good. They don't care. They'll have you do, deal with that and make it look all great as long as you're not following Jesus. They will perpetuate violence, they can possess people, humiliate them, and they'll eventually destroy them. They promote bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and every kind of evil and vile practice. And they work in institutions and through institutions, churches. They can. And take captive men and women through worldly philosophies. And one of their most subtle devices is when they masquerade as false prophets and servants of righteousness. They're awful. So we need to make sure that we are not ignorant of his schemes and understand that Satan is out to get us. Now, how do we do that? How do we fight against him if he's coming like that? Well, here's what you do. You submit to God. Here, check out what James says in James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw, resist the devil, and he will, what? Flee. But nature abhors a vacuum. So if you're going to resist the devil, you need to do something else. You need to replace it with something else. And that means resist the devil, and you need to draw near 
to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's the exact repeat of 1 Peter chapter 5. Same, see the same principle? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you don't have it all together. Release all of your sins and suffering and give it unto him. That's what he desires. Surrender to go to him. Now, it says, notice what Peter says. Resist him in verse 9. Firm in your faith. Now, the word for firm in Greek means to, to, to make stable, firmly established, steadfast, or solid like a foundation. In the physical sense, it actually refers to something to harder that is more concrete, and it's used in opposition to food, like soft food would be for children. And it's saying that solid food is more for the mature. So he's saying, in essence, firm up your faith. Strengthen it. Picturing concrete strengthening. So firm it up. Now, that means we need to be fortifying our faith. If we're going to be getting ready for battle with Satan and and make sure that we're not giving into his schemes, then we need to make sure that we're solidifying and growing ourselves in our faith. That means reading the Word of God, the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you've got to read through every part of it right away, but you need to be in the Word of God because that's how you grow your faith. It's working out. It's like going to the gym. You know, there's two different things. There's, there's atrophy and hypertrophy. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Hypertrophy. How often do you say that word? What is it, my medical people? Is it hypertrophy? Okay, good. Thank you. No idea. So atrophy happens when you don't use a muscle, right? So how many of you are a little older and you remember when you were young and you were just ripped? Remember those days? And you got older and bigger. I'm dealing with that right now. I can barely keep my shirt tucked in. Right? And I got to work out. What happens when you work out? Your muscles go the opposite direction. Not atrophy, they hypertrophy. They grow and swell according to the use that you put them through. That's what we're to do. So we're to do that with our faith. We're to be working out our faith. That means getting in the, the spiritual gym, in essence. Burn what you learn. If you're taking in the Word of God, you need to be sharing what you're learning with other people. So you're burning what you learn. Many of us are spiritually fat, we're spiritually out of shape. We're eating the word, but we're not working out. we got to make sure that we are burning what we're learning and exercising our faith, training ourselves and, and growing in the faith. That means learning what we believe, learning what the Bible says, what God has for us, how we can walk with him and apply it to our lives. It's not just Sunday morning. It's all of life. Many of us have dealt with people that show up on Sunday morning, and you could be that kind of person, but that's not the Christianity that the Bible knows. There's only one kind, and that's lifelong discipleship and following Jesus and ordering your life according to his word. So we need to be firming up our faith, fortifying our faith. Now, fortifying our faith means understanding that we're also going to suffer. Look at verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now remember, we're dealing with this in the first century. The, the church is small, but yet they're spread out. And they're going through a huge amount of persecution. We think of the Neronian persecution that's going on in church history, where, as we've talked about, Christians were being taken out, doused in kerosene, hung on poles, and then lit on fire and used as streetlights. So there's suffering going on all over the place. And he's saying then that, I mean, understanding that, you know what? You're suffering, and so are other people. Understand that your suffering is not unique See, many of us think that if we're suffering, then something's wrong. And it could be. It could be because of sin. But it also could be that God's growing your faith. And, and just your suffering, you say, woe is me. We have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves. And God is saying, no, don't do that. Other people are suffering just like you are. And understand that your suffering's not unique to you. There are other people that are suffering, but there's joy to come. See, we have this tendency to barter with God and would rather sin than feel the pain of suffering. It's just like, like seeing a pregnant woman give birth. She's going through intense pain, but it's okay because of the joy that awaits at the end of it. So he's saying you're suffering for a little while, but there's joy to come. Right, Emily? Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, the intensity of the pain, awful. I can say that as a man. It's awful. <laughs> Oh, I'm so happy to be a man in that regard. 
Oh, God bless you women. God bless you. God bless you. Let's look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, God has called us to his eternal glory, and he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now, he wants us to be then carrying out our calling. See, God has called us to do this, and he's saying that Press on, continue on, carry out this calling that I have for you. Even though suffering is coming, doing the right thing means carrying on. Don't give up, don't give in. Keep moving, one foot in front of the other. Keep going on, daily dying to yourself, taking up your cross, living the life that God wants you to do. Don't don't be trying to shoot the home run ball. It's good just to get on base and keep moving. Keep moving. Don't give in, don't give up. Carry on in your calling, calling. That's why he says, after you have suffered for a little while. So we understand that this suffering is temporal. That's why Paul says by the Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. Notice this. I mean, he's undergoing intense persecution. And he can say this is light affliction. Light affliction and it's momentary, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, those spiritual things that God has, the spiritual reality of glory in Him, which is greater than this reality that we're experiencing now. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he's saying that your suffering is temporal. Your suffering is temporal. Now, it's interesting how what he's saying there, that it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Peter even says this weight of glory that's coming. And I, I can't help but think of oysters. I know it sounds a little strange, but an oyster. Now, an oyster can get a piece of sand in it, and that sand irritates that oyster. It irritates the oyster so much that it coats that piece of sand in order to deal with it. It's, it, it drives it nuts. It's a thorn in its flesh. It hates it, and it can't get it out no matter how hard it tries. So it keeps coating it and coating it, and coating it. And what's it result in? Results in a a pearl. Now, a pearl is the result of irritation in the oyster. And that irritation ends up making something beautiful. See, God is bringing us the suffering in, in our life to bring something beautiful within us and create something beautiful, something that is precious, something that is valuable for Him. So it's understanding that this suffering that we go through is completely temporal. But the glory that he's offering into us and his glory is eternal. It's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I like how it says in the movie Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. See, understanding that we're following Christ now is going to bring us into an eternal weight of glory beyond what we can imagine. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon entitled The Eternal Weight of Glory, he said this, He said, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness of purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Then he says this, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, and we've been talking about being strangers in a strange land, the longing to be acknowledged, to be met with some response, to, rebri- to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory and the sense described becomes hi- highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking our All our lives will open at last. Now, what he's saying there is this, is that there's been this sense that we've had within us when we experience pleasures in this world that they're only a foretaste of the great pleasures that are experiencing with him. Many of us can't understand that. When we think of heaven, we don't think of the glory and pleasure and the eternal joy of being in his presence. And Lewis is saying it's far greater than we could ever understand. Everything that we have in this life, it creates a longing for something better and more grander that can only be realized and actualized in the real world. And that is in his presence. 
That's the eternal weight of glory that is, it goes on and on, and it's being accepted in the sight of God. It's having him as our heart's desire. Everything that within us that we've yearned for, that we've worked for, is found in him. We have an eternal weight of glory. Knowing then that God has prepared us for this helps us to understand that this position that we have in him is unshakable. It's unshakable. Notice that God has called us to this eternal glory in him. He is the one who will restore, strengthen, and establish. You know, it's interesting. The word restore means to fit or join together, and so to mend or repair. Some translate it as perfect us. But the idea is more of making it whole again, restoration, setting something that was right, which was wrong. It means God restoring us to a former condition. There was a TV show on HGTV called Junk Brothers a few years ago. And what it was is these guys would pull up when you put your garbage on the side, and they would find furniture, and they would grab it, and they'd throw it in the back of their truck, and they'd go back to their shop, and they'd take this junk, and they would make it amazing and restore it, and then they'd come and set it back on the corner again for you. I mean, I, I, no one's ever done that for me. But they make it, take something that was bad and make it amazing. See, that's what the picture here is. God restoring us, making us great, restoring us to something great in him. Not that we're perfect. See, many of us think that we have to come to God already clean and have everything together. No, no. You come to God broken, let him restore you. He's the God that recreates you into what he wants you to be. Come as you are. Some, some other person said to me the other day, they said, is it wrong to be angry with God? And I said, I think your question's wrong. Is it wrong to be dishonest with God? If you're, be honest with God. And if that means angry, be honest with him. He can handle it. He can handle it. And he'll transform you. Be honest with God. Come to God with what is in you, not what should be in you. Be honest. Come to him broken, and he will transform, restore, confirm, and make you whole. He will also confirm you. The word there means stand firm in. It's the idea of buttressing something that is weak. God will conform you or strengthen you according to his purpose as you face the onslaughts of the evil one. The idea also is of establishing which means foundational, fundamental, describing that which lies beneath. It's, it's like digging when they're getting ready to do a building project and they have to dig down to the bedrock. It's saying that God is going to build something in you that is completely foundational. And he's giving us something then that is completely unshakable in him. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8. We're reminded how unshakable we are. As Paul by the Spirit writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what that means there is that our position in the sight of God is unshakable. If we're to do the right thing, we have to understand that if we're doing it for God, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what someone brings out about you, about your past, because they're not the one who is the judge of all the earth. If God has called you to himself and he's established you, then that's all you need to worry about. If God is for you, then who can be against you? Who's bigger than God? You know, like the little kid said, who made God? Nobody made God. He is, was, and ever will be. Self-existent. And if God is for you and is in your corner because you have surrendered to him and given your life to him, then know this, that there's nothing that can... You're, you're, you're unbreakable. You're unstoppable. And that's that last point. We have to understand then that his reign, because it says in the text in 1 Peter chapter, verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. His dominion means his reign is unstoppable. His reign is unstoppable. This world is the warm-up act. 
the reality is on the other side. We're on one side of the door right now. One day we'll be getting in. The leaves, the, the pages of the New Testament are rustling like leaves. Somehow we're going to get in one day. God is going to bring us into his presence. So if that means that that's the real reality, then we need to do the right thing now. What changes do you need to make right now in your life to do the right thing? How do you need to humble yourself? How do you need to brace for battle? How do you need to, what cares do you need to relinquish to him? What sins do you need to step away from and leave behind? What do you need to do? What do you need to do to do the right thing? Don't look at your circumstances. Don't let temporal things dictate eternal consequences. Understand that what we do now does echo in eternity. So do the right thing in the present time so that in the future you will experience the joy and reality for which he has purposed us to have in and through him for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence knowing that we fail, knowing that we fall. We know that we're not perfect. We, we have a tendency to be proud, to pursue our own way. We have a penchant for pride, power, prestige, prosperity. We would rather have comfort rather than Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to see that if we are to have the crown that you have promised to those who love and follow you, we must take up our cross and follow you. Lord, help us to truly do the right thing, even if it means hurting ourselves in the temporal, so we might have you in the eternal. Lord, help us to do that which is pleasing in your sight, even when those around us are going in a different way even though they rail against us day in and day out. Help us to care more about you rather than about what other people think. Lord, help us to remember once again that you died, gave your son to die on the cross for our sins, that we can have life in you forevermore. Lord, help us to truly enter into that life by faith. Help us to walk with you in discipleship and help us to do that which is pleasing in your sight that your name might receive glory in us. We ask your blessing on us today. In Jesus' name, amen.